good morning, good morning, everybody, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn, please, to the Old Testament book of Amos, page 647 in um, the church Bibles, and near the end of the Old Testament in your Bible, um, over the next few months, we're going to step into a small book. It has just nine chapters, 146 verses, just a bit over 2,000 words in, in the original Hebrew. And so we're going to dive into this book this morning and um, essentially go and work through an introduction. We want to welcome everybody here. Always glad to see you. I see faces sometimes that I don't recognize. And so I'm going to go through my spiel. <laughs> My, my name is Joe Franzone, and we are sincerely happy that you're here this morning, and um, you're very welcome, and um, okay, Amos chapter 1, we're going to read the word, and then we're going to pray. We're just going to read the first two verses, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. What he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherd dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Okay, in light of that, we need to pray, don't we? (laughs) Let's bow our heads together and ask God for his help. From the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy. Float a vast and glorious tide, grace and love like mighty rivers flow flow incessant from above, perfect peace and perfect justice. Kissed a guilty world in love. God and Father, we stand as always in great need of your help today. We need your blessing to speak, to stand, to think to understand so that we might obey. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the songs that we have sung to you and the truth that were in them. You are glorious, Father. You are wonderful and you are mighty. To that end, we pray for Dwight and Tracy and their children. We pray again that your blessing would be on their ministry. We ask God that you would quickly remove the 2000 a scripture gap that is presented in the world right now we certainly have the resources in this world to change that and you have the mighty power to put it in your people to learn and relearn new languages to commit themselves over the long haul maybe their whole life to a cause such as so simple to put the bible in a language that someone can understand There's seven billion people in the world that you've made. You've made each one of them, God. So we entrust them now to you and your care and to your keeping. Uh, I would say that you would save them, that you would save all of them, God, according to your will, and that you would save us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I suspect that this this, um, book might be unfamiliar to some of us, And if not unfamiliar, then perhaps kind of puzzling. Puzzling because the style of writing, excuse me, can be difficult to understand. Puzzling because 
the history that Amos speaks into might be known by some of us, but probably not most of us. And puzzling because with all this rebuke and condemnation and judgment preaching that Amos will use as we get further along into the book, as he warns God's people of God's judgment, he will either seem out of touch to the modern listener or this is the kind of stuff of tub thumpers from the backwards of Georgia. Last time I said West Virginia and I got in trouble for that. So I, and if you're from Georgia, I apologize right now. But he would seem so undignified. There's no humor in this. God isn't this way anymore. And Amos will seem to be just an irritated man at best. And so the people say, well, what's he so on about? But Amos is one of the 66 books given to us in the Bible. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period. And the Bible is inspired. It is given to us by God through his Holy Spirit through the pen of mere men. So it is a good gift. And so as it is with all good gifts from God, we ought not to ignore it. We not, ought not to waste it, but we ought to just put ourselves into it and put it to use. Because as Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is God breathed. Even this mysterious and confronting book of Amos and all scripture then, Amos is, is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training for righteousness so that, and here's the purpose, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the book of Amos is God-breathed. And as difficult as it may be to understand or to teach or even as painful and uncomfortable it might be to listen to at times, it is useful. It's useful because it comes from God so that as the pastor studies it, 2 Timothy 3, and teaches it to God's people, he may then in turn equip God's people thoroughly for every good work because essentially it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And the Christian at every age has good work to do. So it's important that we get a steady diet of the whole Bible so that we will be useful. For example, having a balanced diet in our tummies is good. And it holds true there and it holds true to the life of the church. Many of us might be drawn to a topic or two and we spend large amounts of time in those topics. And that's fine. But if we spend all our time in one or two things and spend no or very little in the rest of the other things in the scriptures, we essentially become imbalanced. We are unable to listen to others. We're unable to speak to others. God's truth from other books might seem to you as untruth. Because you're so into those one or two truths. And so then we become unuseful. So it becomes very imperative that I get the broccoli and the spinach out of Amos. And say now come on now let's give it a go. I was thinking about the, the airplane spoon that we used to use for the kids right. It was come on now open up. It's not going to taste so hot. I understand that. It might change things inside of you a bit. But I promise if you get this into your belly all kinds of wonderful things will happen. Good things. And why is that so? Well, because the Bible is the book and this book is the scriptures. It's not just history. It's theology. It's theology and the God who Amos speaks for hasn't changed. The God of Jesus Christ, our our Father, hasn't changed. He hasn't reduced himself. He hasn't lightened up. He, he, He is unchanging. He's immutable. And for the times we live in now, This book might corner us hard. It might corner the church in the West right now hard as the book begins to unfold. And I think we'll begin to recognize this. 
But what we need to do is just affirm the words of the New Testament and the Apostle Paul, Romans 15, when he said about Amos and the other 38 books in the Old Testament and the 27 in the New, everything that was written in the past was written to instruct us. Everything, including the book of Amos, was written to instruct us. So, as usually, most of the time we have some headings to work under. The first heading that we're going to work under, and you can see that in the back of your worship folder, is the person. Okay, just who was Amos? Well, verse 1, chapter 1, we, we find out about Amos. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Decoah. Now, you'll notice that his bio was very, very brief. Decoah, the place where Amos was from, was a very small town. It was a small town in Judah, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, about half that distance southeast of Bethlehem. Tekoa was a town of no real wealth, no real significance, and there was nothing really special about Tekoa that would mark the place out. And we should pay attention to that. This is a common theme for Amos. So Tekoa has no bragging rights. All the best and the brightest people did not come out of Tekoa. And beyond this very brief bio of Amos, we know only one other thing about Amos. It's in the 14th verse of chapter 7. And if you would, I would just recommend maybe turn a few pages and make sure what I'm telling you is true. And what you'll see there in chapter 7 around verse 14, the verses before that, Amos is confronted by a high priest. His name is Amaziah. We'll learn about this rascal more later on. But he was, wasn't really into what Amos was saying. And so Amos says to Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. Okay, well, there you go, right? Really impressive, right? Of course not. Amos is saying right off the bat that on the human level, I have absolutely no credentials to do what I'm doing. And because of this, I'm so certain uh, that Amaziah and all men like Amaziah, maybe we've met a few in our days. I've met a few of Amaziahs in my days. You would look at Amos in, in his eyes and, and he would have to say, give me a break. You know, are you kidding me? I'm the high priest of Bethel. You can see that in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 7. I've been into the highest halls of learning. I am the king's high priest. I have lunch with the king every Tuesday and Thursday in the high places. That's a little bit of liberty I took, but I'm sure he did those things. And then he says, this is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. In other words, you can't get any higher than what I'm at, little man, Amos. And you, Amos, are none of these things. And you think that you can say the things that you're saying in verses or chapters 1 through 6. You think you can say those things and you can come into my jurisdiction and say these things? Who do you think you are? And so Amos tells them, well, I'm a shepherd and I'm a keeper of sycamore fig trees. Now, it's possible that Amos was a sheep owner and that he was a man of some means. Uh, the latest scholarship, I have to tell you these things because they're true, says that this might be so, that he might not be poor, he might be kind of wealthy, that he had high skills that could have been in demand for fig tree care, even though fig trees was usually the diet of the poor. But the terms he uses to describe himself could lend to a higher status than someone from the lower classes, but it's equally possible that he was just an ordinary man. And this is the key. And the only extraordinary thing about Amos was really how ordinary he was. How ordinary, how average he was. 
But the point is that he uses very few terms to describe himself. If he had a Facebook, his friends would say, Jeepers Creepers, Amos, update your Facebook. I mean, you might be the most ordinary average person on my Facebook, and you have no pictures, Amos. What's up with that? But Amos was very, very careful not to expand himself at all in the eyes of men and women and his readers. Amos was not the self-promoting type. And how refreshing, how refreshing is that? So how then do we find him in this particular place, in this particular point in history, in this particular book, and in this particular Bible, which is the best-selling book of all time still, so that the greatest number of people who've read through the Bible know about Amos. How do we find Amos in this position? Well, it's only one thing that makes it so. And if your Bibles are still open to chapter 7, it's in the very next verse after 14, verse 15. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. And that's it. Those are his credentials. And, and this gives us the first and possibly one of the greatest lessons of the book, God's use of the insignificant. God's use of the nobodies. The dirty little secret of fallen man is that we want to be significant. We want to be noteworthy. We want to be substantial. Genesis 11, we want to make a name for ourselves. We like long resumes. I mean, just, just think for a moment and just listen to the way people talk to one another. We just typically give the list so that people might say, oh my, really, you went there and you know him and you know her? Oh, well, you've done this? Oh, boy. I mean, that's, like, that's actually, actually a typical pastor's prayer fellowship, that kind of language. But again, possibly the greatest lesson of the book is that God uses the insignificant. Because why God may choose whom he chooses. It is more often the case that God uses the insignificant, that the nobodies, so that all glory and all honor may go to the one whom all glory and honor is due. Just, just listen to your Bibles. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Did he just call me foolish? God chose the foolish of the things of the world to shame, shame, shame the wise. God used the weak things. Did he just call me weak? God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly. Did he just call me lowly? God chose the lowly things of the world and to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And you skip over to 2 Corinthians. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now think of this in a line of thinking in relation to contemporary Christianity. Is that the way it goes? I would suggest to you in large part it is not. Think about the way the world works. Is that the way it goes? Again, I would suggest to you by in large it does not. Is that what we tend to hear in the rearing of our children? Again, I would suggest to you in large measure that is not. And yet that is the way of our triune God. Think with me. Just think, let's just think biblically here. Abraham, who was he? Well, all we know about him is that God chose him. We know very little of his credentials. He was Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. 
And then God put the I wills on him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and so on. David, the youngest of eight, as a result of being last, nothing in that culture was expected of him. Nothing that he would shock the world. Even God's own prophet didn't expect David to be the one. What did he do? Well, he does what all humans do. We saw, he sized him up. He looked him over. And then he said, this can't be the one. But while the best of men only have the propensity to look on the outside, thank God, God looks on the inside. Who made these men these, this way? Who made men and women, period? Who made Billy Graham, Billy Graham? What marked Billy Graham at? He, he barely got by in Bible college. So, so what was the deal? Well, it was God. It was the impartation of God's power. What marked Charles Spurgeon out? He was heavy set. He was a cigar smoker, preacher. He never went to seminar. He started preaching when he was 16 years old. What made him him? It was the impartation of God's power. What marked the well-heeled, well-educated, five-foot-nothing of a man who a strong wind could blow over? John Wesley. What marked him out? It was the impartation of God's power. See, too often we say, well, you dress a certain way and you act a certain way. You say dude a lot and say Mesopotamia a lot and that'll get the people going. And of course, the best did you like that when I said Mesopotamia? I, took, I had to practice that. <laughs> the best and purest example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's uh, NIV 2011. So from the human perspective, what marked Jesus out? His father said to go and he went. The impartation of God's power. The, the sinful urge to be something, to be significant, to be so significant that the people around us would never dream that we would need a savior, that we need someone to rescue us from our sin is in all of us and we have to beat that beast down. Parents, when we raise our children, beware of this. Pray for the grace that what we pour into our kids is for the glory of God alone and not to make a name for them or ourselves. Everything else, I promise you, everything else that they need, I promise you, God will take care of. So you got the person Amos. Amos was unassuming in the way that he described himself. He was not a religious professional. He was not a priest. He had no priestly heritage. He had no theological training. He was only experienced with sheep tending and tree carrying. He may have been the kind of adult child that his parents might have skipped over in conversation at the dinner party. And yet, yet he was more than likely, along with Jonah, the first missionaries of the Bible... He was one of the first of the writing prophets. He was a man that was given weighty words. He spoke with a burden in his belly for the Lord. We'll find that out later. Much of the book is, in the Hebrew is written poetically, which would indicate intense feeling. Feeling, why Amos, why are you so passionate? Because God's name was being dishonored and Amos couldn't stand it. And God's people were misbehaving. And Amos said, God would no longer stand for it. Injustice was everywhere. The poor, the little man was suffering. And because God called Amos, Amos had to go and speak against it. Dear friends, if, if we're someone 
who likes to be at the very center of our universe, that kind of person will not like the preaching of Amos. If, if self-achievement and self-preservation and self-aggrandizement and ease is someone's only aspiration, they will not like God's man Amos. If they're arranging their lives with the propensity to have this kind of bloated self of uh, sense of human capacity, they won't like God's man Amos. Now, let's just kind of try to understand this. Peggy Noonan, Wall Street Journal, 2009. This is what she said. If you don't know anything about Peggy Noonan, she's a wonderful writer and she typically has articles on Saturday edition of Wall Street Journal. For 30 years, the self-esteem movement told the young they are perfect in every way. It's yielding something new in history. An entire generation of no proper sense of inadequacy. William Cohen, New York Times writes, speaking of how parents aspire ambitiously for their kids. Nowadays, he says, parents hire tutors to correct the pitching motion of their little leaguers. Why? Well, maybe because they can't stand the thought of their little Billy being average and that he will be average like most of us. He'll just be okay at most things. He, he will be insignificant in the whole scheme of things. But what's the response to that? Now, stay with me. No, he's terrific. He's super. There's no one like him. Just you wait. Now, surely every parent wants the best for their child. And we understand thoughtful, correct parental pride. That is good. But we dare not fall foul of the idea that all the baggage that they carry and that they might carry until their very end somehow or another is bad for us because those things we might consider as our detriments could actually be to our pluses. When we say, if only I was smarter, if only I was taller, if only I was richer, if only I was skinnier, thicker, blonder, I had different parents, if only I had a better this or a better that, whatever it is, have you ever thought that all of those differences were given to us by a creator God who established our very DNA, who put us in the place where we're at, who said, set us where he wanted to be set to to whom all those detriments mingle with all his providence are there for the purpose so that God's grace may come down on you. What's the biblical line? Weakness is strength. What's the biblical line? Inadequacy is adequacy. What's the biblical line? Insignificance is safe. And that's Amos. We should like it when people say to us, he's not that good. I'm not quite sure how he does it. We, yeah, we should like it when, they, when people say, well, she's not that great. I'm not sure how he does it. Because the point is, is that God's grace is in action. His power is coming down so that God can be known of all this. What's the purpose of Amos? Amos wants God to be known. He doesn't want Amos to be known. Because God's power is made perfect, teleos, complete in our weakness. Because I know that that's what the Christian wants. We want God to be known. And Amos does that. Some of you might know that it was about one year ago this weekend. Uh, I think it was Friday, Steve Jobs passed away. He said a lot of different things. But one of the things that he said that I like was this. He said, and it's probably one of his most quoted quotes. When I got fired from Apple, it became the best thing that could happen to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again and less sure about everything. See? Less sure 
about everything. Hey, hey, Amos, who are you? Not much. But God took me, and God chose me, and that's it. Second point. Now to the times. Still in verse 1. You can read there two years before the earthquake. Well, which earthquake? Well, nobody exactly knows. People get in arguments. The commentaries get in all kinds of arguments. I couldn't tell you. Maybe we'll learn along the way. But we're also told two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Now, now most of you know, or many of you will know, that the kingdom was divided about 150 years from the time of Amos' ministry into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. And you can read 1 Kings and you'll discover this, that the kingdom was established by David, the kingdom was expanded by Solomon, and the kingdom, we can read in 1 Corinthians 12, was divided under Rehoboam. So there was a southern kingdom, and it was called Judah. And there was a northern kingdom called Israel. Judah had two of the original 12 tribes of Israel, and Israel had 10 of the original 12 tribes of Israel. The kings, we are told, were Uzziah and Jeroboam. They they were perfect for their times. Uzziah was the king of Judah in the south. He was a very good king that went bad at his very end. Okay, here we are again. What age did he go very bad? Well, it was about the same age as David in his 50s. In his 50s, this is what the Bible says, he was greatly helped until he became powerful. His pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to his God. And if you know the rest of the story, he was struck by God with leprosy. So Uzziah was the king of Judah in the south. Jeroboam was the king of Israel in the north. He was a very bad king who stayed very bad. Now listen carefully. So you got a bad king who was always bad. You got a good king who was bad at the end. But both are really good at what they did. So their kingdoms thrived. So it wasn't like you had a bad king and so the land suffered. At this time, it did not suffer. There was economic prosperity at levels never seen before. There was no foreign enemies that they had to be concerned about. And both kingdoms hated each other. Now, this is what's so funny about God. So the south hated the north. And so God sent Uzziah from the south to go preach to the people in the north. And they didn't like him right off the back because he was from the south, okay? So when did this all happen? Around 760 BC. So Amos comes into a time, and this is what we need to know, that had massive financial prosperity. That's Amos 3.15. You can read this later. Massive financial prosperity. There was religious hypocrisy, chapter 5, verse 21, And there was lots of immoral activity. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. So financial prosperity, 315. Religious hypocrisy, 521. Immoral activity, 2, 7 and 8. Let's just spend a minute on each of those. Financial prosperity. The highest levels of wealth brought the upper class more leisure and more tranquility than they had ever known. And that did not lead to good. It led to pride. So they began to abandon their duty to God. And they begin to abandon their abuse or begin to abuse their fellow man. And so the poor, as wealth so frequently does, was ignored. They looked at men and women as economic beings only. And that's where their society was headed. So that was financial prosperity, religious hypocrisy. They did not live up to their responsibility to God. Their prosperity led to neglect. 
Their neglect led to hypocrisy. It was a dead faith. It was an empty religion. Their duty to God and their duty to man was, was just set aside. It was like, hurry up. Let's get this Sabbath service over with. Business is waiting. Pleasure is waiting. We'll go through the routines, but nothing ever good came out of it. And God's commands were reduced to personal options and not a servant obligation. So they thought they could go into the thing and pick and choose. And Amos was sent to tell them no. So you had financial prosperity, religious hypocrisy, immoral activity. The men were dishonest and cruel. The women, Amos says, were haughty. They trampled the poor. They rejected God's law. They had done far less than God required. And they did much too more than God allowed. And the good times they enjoyed simply just kind of blocked sight of all these things. And they couldn't see it. And so Amos had to be sent to tell them. There's a Jewish theologian. His name is Abraham Heschel. He said this, ancient societies cherish three things above all else, intellect, wealth, and might. And nothing's really changed. And so Amos blasts into that world of intellectual skill, of wealth and power. He blasts into that world and he says, every one of those things are a false idol. Amos is the link between prosperity and morality, between hypocrisy and earnestness, between immorality and morality. So one of my favorite quotes. So if you had to describe the time Amos was in, it was this, a little bit of Dickens here. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the age of belief. It was the age of disbelief. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven and we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like this present period. So you had the person, you had the times, finally and briefly, the message. Well, what did, what did Amos say? Verse 2, the lion roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Well, he started his ministry then centered on the word of God. He just it, went into the place and said what God said. That's the ministry of the word. This is ministry, verse 3, right? This is what the Lord said. He wasn't trying to be cute he wasn't trying to be clever. He wasn't trying to be liked. He wasn't trying to build clouds. He just needed to say what God wanted him to say. And we will always need that. We will always need God's word. And that's what Amos gave. He gave words from the Lord. In fact, to be real honest with you, all of Amos's words were not new words. They were old words. They were words from the old covenant. This is stuff from Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And he didn't speak under his power. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit to Peter. And Amos now was a prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament were the mouthpiece of God. Amos, if you would, was God's megaphone. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And so my, the people might turn on Amos for what he said. They were actually turning on God by what he gave to Amos. Now prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament have a function. Ephesians 2.20 says that they're the foundation of God's household, the church, his kingdom, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And all that means is this, is that Amos is teaching, is Jesus is teaching. And the stuff that Amos is gonna talk about is the stuff that Jesus talked about when he walked this earth. So the stuff that Amos was saying in century eight 
is still the stuff that Jesus was saying in century one and still the stuff that we need to know and understand and believe and obey in century 21. But there were false prophets in Amos's day. I had a dream. I had a vision. And the dream and the vision said, and these are the kind of Amos's contemporaries, do what you like. Everything's just fine. Live as you please. And the people would come lining up for that. They always will. will. I mean, if you really want to draw a crowd, tell everybody everything they're doing is just fine. And no, no one will ever be mad at you. You'll tell them you have no responsibility. You have all kinds of liberty. And that you'll always have tranquility. Isn't that wonderful? A great three sermon point. No responsibility. And the little E at the end. All kinds of liberty. And there'll always be tranquility. And yet Amos would say, no, there is a God and you have some obligation to this God. The doctor, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, the late Dr. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, and I'm gonna close with this. He would have been a wonderful contemporary of Amos because at the close of the 20th century, he wrote and spoke of what he called this. He said, the Christian West has a love affair for personal peace and, and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. And, and that personal peace, tranquility, and affluence were rapidly becoming an idol in the church. And that the highest ambition men and women had in the church was personal peace and affluence. And so let's just kind of work down that line. The search begins, right? And the authors and the pastors begin to feed that need of personal peace and affluence. Now think this out. I'm not trying to be unkind, but what do many people think about when they think about God and when they pray to God? I mean, I would suggest to you that many people say, just give me some peace and make things okay, right? Give me some personal peace and make things okay. We'll call that affluence. And he said that many people, when they think of Christianity, that's all they think about. That's all they pray for and that's all they aspire to. That's their big plan, personal peace and affluence. And yes, they might give token prayers and token gifts and a token help to this causes of Christ. That's just mere formalism, he said. But never at a very large costly expense. Never at a level that will do something that will delay and remove potentially the hope of personal peace and affluence. Never done in a way that will trouble their homes, trouble their very existence, like the way of the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who while on this earth had no place to lay his head. Loved ones, Amos is God's man. He is speaking God's word. God is unchanging. And Amos says to the people of his day, for the time, the time for such nonsense is over. Because the God of the universe, his patience has finally come to an end. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together as we prepare now to take from the Lord's table. And if the elders of our congregation would please come forward to help me serve. Let's pray together while they're coming forward. Our God and Father, we um, thank you that there is an Amos And we thank you that Amos will teach us why we are in great need of a Savior. And Amos will teach us that this Savior does not ever leave us where we're at, but will always bid us forward, even as our sins will be forgiven by his mighty grace, and even as his power will be given to live a holy life because we stand in such need. Make this a useful time these next few months in Amos. Make us better people, better Christians for it. Help us 
beginning with myself, not to lie to ourselves about what we do and are not and things of that nature. And help us to listen to Amos as if Jesus himself was speaking to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.